Hey there, and welcome to Beer Branding Trends, conversations on building stronger craft beverage brands. Kodo Design has spent more than a decade working with craft food and beverage artisans, helping them to brand or rebrand, reposition, and reimagine what a compelling F&B brand can be. This show captures all of our fieldwork and experience into practical strategies, tips, and tactics to help you build a stronger brand and sell more beer. I'm Isaac Arthur. And I'm Cody Fay. And this is the Beer Branding Trends Podcast. Hey, Cody, what's up? Not a whole lot, Isaac. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Cody, today we're going to hit another Q&A episode, and I've got three questions that are grouped together that all have to do with audience definition. Mm, nice. Yeah, it's a conversation that we've been having a lot more thoroughly in recent years out of necessity uh, than we did in our early work. Yeah, I think we touched on this in an episode a while back. Uh, it was the episode defining your brewery's audience, if I remember correctly. That <laughs> It sounds right. Or at least it sounds like something we would have talked about at some point, hypothetically. Yeah, I, I have no idea, actually. But anyway, we, we probably shouldn't leave that entire point alone. So really quickly, because you mentioned it, why do you think that we haven't really had to focus on defining audiences in our early, in all of the craft beer branding work that we've done? I'm, I'm thinking specifically like 2010 to, I don't know, 17, 18. Well, I think the industry was ascending at that point for one. It was kind of new and exciting and there was just sort of a built-in and oftentimes like just a audience that just showed up and you didn't have to think about it that much. It would just emerge. It was, there was, you know, the very like, if you build it, they will come yeah. <laughs> no matter where you put a brewery in the ground. It, yeah. I mean, that, and that actually was the case for, I mean, it's like organic growth was very easy to find in, in the, those, those years. So, you know, as a result, it, it allowed people to kind of rest on their laurels and how they defined audiences. So I think a lot of people just de defaulted to the sort of homogenous stereotype of, you know, it, it's younger white guys with disposable income. And, and that's just what craft beer is. I'm painting with a broad brush there, but that's, I think, a you know, if not a proud thing, it is generally how the industry was built. And that's, you know, kind of where we're coming from. Yeah, I'd say late 20s, maybe up to 50s, men primarily, certainly people with money to blow on more expensive beer. I mean, it was more expensive objectively. Yeah. So, I mean, we just rarely had a project in that time where our clients would be forced to think about it any, in, in a way any more complex than that. That has changed a lot over the last few years. I, I think we've seen that in our project work for sure. Yeah, 100%. People have really been forced to think about it a little bit more than not thinking about it at all, especially in our non-beer work, non-beer beverage work. So any of our RTD cocktail clients or kombucha or anytime we touch a coffee brand or functional beverages are a big one. Yeah. I mean, in those cases, we're finding, you know, founders of companies or R&D or marketing teams or whoever it is that we're working with are way more dialed in to feeling like they need to clearly understand their audience, defining things like aspirations and hopes and dreams and how their brand can kind of better serve that those people specifically. Yeah. So it definitely, and that makes sense that it's in beverage because the, the type of beverage brands that, that we work with are generally, you know, focused on an occasion or a lifestyle or an activity. So it makes sense that they'd have that kind of dialed in, but we are starting to see it in beer as well. I think definitely when we're helping to build a more intentionally positioned lifestyle brand, which we've done more of this year, but also some of our brand architecture work and helping to develop sub brands and I'm not sure. It will, maybe we will touch on this as we answer these questions, which we will get to here in a minute. But uh, there are some significant demographic changes happening within beverage alcohol here as well, uh, in the States anyway, that, that I think that breweries need to be aware of. 
men are drinking less, women are drinking more, uh, here, you know, 10, 15 years from now, maybe even sooner, boomers are aging out of drinking. They hit this kind of point at 75 years old and they just stop drinking. It's kind of obviously across, across the board, we're painting with a very broad brush, but that's been proven out. Gen Z drinking less, maybe, you know, we're, we're still not sure if that's true or not, but I, I think that there are some interesting things with Gen Z that make it kind of a wild card. But anyway, the next 10 to 15 years are going to be very, very different from the 2010s. I don't know. Do we have a name, a catchy name for the 10s? I don't know. Teen, the, 20 yeah, teens. The, the 20 teens, I guess. I don't like that. That didn't sound good. <laughs> very different time building a, a brewery moving forward or building an exit, you know, continuing on and building a brand uh, versus where we were in, in the past. So, yeah, absolutely. So let's do this. Uh, three questions here, all loosely based around. Defining your audience. And let's start with Mary's. Mary? Marie. I think it's Marie. It's Maureen. You're not looking at the... (laughs) That's great. Uh, I'm going to... Mario. Mario. uh, I'm going to go with Marie. So here we go. Two-part question from Marie. How do you prevent customer personas from becoming overly stereotypical? This seems like it would leave the door open for any number of sweeping generalizations and maybe not be that valuable as you begin to work on brand strategy. And secondly, do you find that most breweries' customer persona exercises tend to be similar? Thanks for your time. I find your show valuable and have assigned more than one of your episodes to my class as listening assignments. So good question here or questions. Cody, let's start with the first one. How do you prevent customer personas from becoming overly stereotypical? Seems like that would leave the door open for any number of sweeping generalizations and maybe not be that valuable as you begin to work on brand strategy. I think there are a lot of fair points here. What do you think? There's always a trap of relying too heavily on personas mm-hmm. or any exercise like that. The more cynical side of me kind of points to that and as maybe sometimes why that type of approach can be not so great. But what I mean by that is even if you pull and build these personas based on real people, which is how you should do it, you know, there should be some bearing in reality when, when you're trying to kind of make these amalgamation representative people to kind of stand in for your audience and who you're talking about. That's kind of the value of it as a tool. You know, we've only had a few projects where that was the only thing a group would focus on. And you can get into a kind of a sticky place where you sort of over rely on the personas as a tool because what a persona is, and and I think Marie is picking up on that, it essentially is <laughs> like, it's like the white lie version of a stereotype. You are making an amalgamation, a generalization, and that can swing both ways, obviously. You mentioned sort of overly relying on that tool. You're giving me kind of vivid, terrible flashbacks of not a brewery client, but a larger CPG beverage brand that we, company that we've worked with at one point. I I think that's probably who you're talking about. Yeah, I think they're actually exactly who I'm thinking about, you know, as an example of this. Okay. And, and we'll leave it vague, obviously, to try yeah, to probably just probably just take that whole point out there. <laughs> just maintain a semblance of professionalism. Um, yeah. it, it wasn't yeah. a craft brewery for whatever that's worth. But either way, the few projects where we worked with a group who, you know, personas were really kind of how they viewed the world. In some cases, you could say maybe too much weight on personas and their value you know, refining personas through multiple rounds and just having a hard time moving beyond that specific exercise. And I remember kind of in an early engagement there, kind of being a point in the process where we were all talking and you and I just had to bluntly say, you know, okay, we need to focus on what the product is now. 
um, and how we position that and what are the key messages and so forth. That went over really well. Yeah. <laughs> so, would it be fair to say that they were focusing on one particular part of the brand strategy process at the expense of all the other important parts? I mean, I don't know how valuable even this this kind of vein is here, but let's let's keep discussing it. I think so. I, I mean, it's a brilliant team of people. Yeah. So, you know, I don't want to harp on this too much, but you just hit a point of diminishing returns uh, really easily. And in my mind, it went well beyond anything that was useful for what we were trying to achieve so early on in, in a process. And obviously, to be very clear about this, defining who your customers are, what your sort of communication audience is, is important. It's crucial. But you'd have to then use that info to figure out how a product plays into the, these people's lives, what occasion it fits into, what it says about who they are. You have to be able to, to at some point, synthesize that stuff and move on and kind of figure out you know the implications of it. Yeah, I Agree. I, I think defining your audience is a stepping stone, like everything else in the brand strategy process. And it's something that you should focus on early, but maybe not break your back to do because that audience will likely shift, you know, when you're a year or two into the market, as your company matures, as your industry matures, uh, your audience probably is not a set, uh, I don't know, body. Uh, I, I think so. Did we, did we answer Marie's question? Uh, Maricopa. Maureen? Thank you. Uh, that's great. Let me let me find her question here. How do you prevent customer personas from becoming overly stereotypical? I don't think we answered that at all. <laughs> Cody, how do how do we prevent personas from becoming stereotypes? Boy, that is a hell of a question. So here's what I'm going to say: a persona kind of just is a stereotype, and that's you know, yeah. I don't know about a dirty secret, but it's a a thing in marketing that you know it just kind of is what it is. Well, obvi- obviously, it's a stereotype unless you're just documenting, you know, Susie who comes into your bar or, or tap room and you're, you're just, you're just dissecting Susie and what she's into. You're just, yeah, you're stereotyping your audience. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think by nature that customer personas just kind of are, you know, it doesn't mean that they're like automatically bad, but they are, you're creating a composite of who your ideal customer is or the different types of ideal customers you might be serving. That process in of itself, it relies on generalization. It relies on broad understanding of different groups of people. That is a stereotype, right? You know, if you're wanting to attract suburban families to a small tap room, you're going to have to make some assumptions, uh, probably safe assumptions, but they are assumptions about that group of people. So, you know, maybe you're looking at someone early 30s through late 40s, married couples with kids. You're going to need parking because <laughs> yeah. they drive everywhere. You know, depending on how old their kids are, likely have a bunch of extracurricular activities for the kids built around, you know, a schedule built around, you know, a bunch of different stuff. I'm kind of just creating a persona here, and that might not be very useful to answer the question, but kind of pulling all that together, you know, how can you cater to these folks and become a go-to spot for their hypothetical family? Yeah, I think I think the thing that maybe is at play here, and I could be reading too much into Marie's question, but I wonder if, if in the way that she framed the question, if there's just a negative perception. So, you know, like stereotypes obviously have to be bad. How can we prevent this from being bad? I, I think that could be what's happening here. Yeah. And I mean, I get why people would view stereotypes negatively. Sure. Or yeah. the word stereotype has that that connotation by, I think you tell most people, you bring up stereotype to most people. And that is clumped in with a lot of like bad and ugly stuff. Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and but in this context here, I, I guess I'm looking at that term more clinically. I don't know if you can clinically stereotype, but 
mean, unless you're just being an asshole with how you stereotype, I think it is an effective way to just draw I mean, the goal of this, of a persona in the first place is to draw a circle around who your main audience is, what sort of demographic and psychographic qualities they have, what are they into? So for better or worse in just day-to-day life, stereotypes do exist for a reason. And you're not supposed to say that, but like they generally do. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it just gets to the heart of what a persona is, it, and and that's why you can't put too much weight on it ultimately, because okay. it is just this composite, almost it's fictitious but based on a true story, and so it's it's valuable, but it's only so valuable. So in that sense, I think that's fair. I think composite is a better word. <laughs> if yeah. we just use that, then we we sidestep the whole thing. So anyway, and that's a struggle. If if you service millions of customers or thousands of customers. <laughs> You can't make a dossier on every single, I mean, you know, that's what customer relations, relations management and stuff yeah. is you, to have a profile on every single one of those individuals. That's like real life accurate. That's a cool opportunity for marketers, but that's a lot too. And, and, you know, smaller teams just don't have that capacity. So we have another, yeah, there, there was a second. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's, Marie had a second question. Th- right? Exactly. I, I didn't want to make sure we, we, I wanted to make sure we kept track of that because it's actually an interesting question as well. Do you find most brewery customer persona exercises to be similar? Yeah. We talked about earlier kind of how people used to just default to a very certain type of beer guy. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to jump and interrupt your suburban family. I mean, we've outlined that on like 10 different brew pubs over the last 10 years. I mean, it's, it's like we, and as a, especially it's easy to find yourself, see yourself in the world, but like as a suburban, not necessarily suburban, but just like a, a dad to young family, it's like. Yeah, I know what those folks want. And yeah, anyway, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no. And, and I mean, use that example that we just made up a second ago. A, a suburban married couple with mm-hmm. kids is going to have markedly different needs and is going to be looking for something completely different than a young professional who lives in a condo in Brooklyn and is looking for a nightlife and social settings and career building. It's just a different set of values. Yeah, I, uh, completely. And obviously, you know, I, I think most people would understand that. So to Marie's question here, or what she's probably driving at. I will say that if if you have a thousand breweries at random across the country, just different concepts, grab them at random, and you work through and define their customer personas I, at an individual level, I, I do think that you would probably find half a dozen or so, I don't say tropes, but similar groups come up again and again through that work. So that's not really an indictment on the idea of creating customer personas though. No, you know, you, ha- you just have to know what when they're good and, and when you're trying to get too much out of it. You know, I would say you probably say the same thing about any industry too. It's not just craft beer. I mean, wine or, you know, packaged snacks or distilling or cannabis or fashion or technology or whatever. Yeah. Now, now that we're talking about this, I, I think that really it's just, if you have anyone that's into a certain thing, especially I think, I mean, CPG, I don't know, that's probably too broad and too horizontal, but like a vertical thing, like you're into better beer or you're into wine. I think that you're definitely going to be able to kind of find similar bodies of customers and and people. So demographics maybe, but uh, one more thought here and we can move on to the next question. Whenever we actually work with a brewery to define their customer personas, it's worth mentioning that we, we don't actually do this on every project, but when we do, it is a, it, it can be a very useful tool. It's a shorthand way of keeping your customers in mind through the branding process. So I think the real value of exercises like this is not so much that a persona is like that final decision point, but it's just another helpful touchstone that that we can use to weigh any number of important decisions against. So, you know, what sort of beer styles would this person be into or what sort of events or decor? 
Do they want TVs in the tap room? Do they want beer for carryout? Yeah. And I'll say one more thing too. It's, it's part of when, when we're learning about a brewery and when we're able to either travel or, or get to talk to folks at different levels of like the staff, that's where like talking to front of house frontline people becomes really important because you can say who comes in the door, who do you see when you chat with customers, what are, what's on their minds? Like, what are they into? I think that's a really great way to check if your ideas about customer personas are actually lining up with what people are seeing in terms of like who's coming through the door, who's spending money here. All of that to say, you know, audience personas, uh, composites, whatever you want to call it, stereotypes. It's a great process tool, but take it with a grain of salt. Let's not get too overly excited about that and what it can do. All right. Our next question came in from the Beer Branding Trends newsletter, and this was in, in response to the issue on lifestyle brands. So we'll link to that in the show notes, but this is from Ladovic. I think I'm saying that right, who I believe is a designer in France. So Ladovic asked a simple question. I'm curious, do you use brand archetypes in your brand strategy or do you think it's total BS? Cody, are brand archetypes BS? <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think that brand archetypes are uh, BS. Um, what does BS, that what does BS said, stand for? Is it Bachelor of Science? BS it? stands for... Um, Bull hockey. <laughs> Go ahead. I, I should have just interrupted. You're, they derailed yeah, no, you. <laughs> no I, I don't think they're BS at all. It, it's not something that we use day to day, really. Mm -hmm. But we do think about them because you do see patterns that come up again and again. And I think some of the intuitive leaps you make sometimes are informed by those things, whether you realize it or not. But, but no, I, I don't think it's it, – it's kind of fuzzy and weird, but it's not bullshit necessarily. It's – we, you know, we read a book called The Hero and the Outlaw, I think it might have been. And this this was year, this was like back at our old office. So like 2015 or 16, I think we read it. And it is a really good concept that I bet a lot of successful businesses do use. We just we just don't really use it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I don't really have anything negative to say about that book or, or about the line of thinking you know, a lot of the value in it. And it's it's really similar to what we kind of discussed on customer personas here. Just the extent that brand archetypes can be a helpful process tool to guide yeah. important brand strategy decisions, you know, helping people think about their brand in terms of like being a story or a character. It's just another, you know, angle to take on it. That's a good way to put it. These things, these concepts are tools. They're not the actual thing or deliverable. They're, they're tools. Yeah. And it, you know, with, with how people tend to put these concepts kind of on a pedestal sometimes, that can get backwards, right? You think the the persona or the archetype is the thing in of itself. And it's like, well, no, that's just a vehicle for you to understand what you are better. So you can position your brewery as a as a you know, as a troubled jester or a or a uh sing song nymph or, you know, whatever the whatever the the like kind of fun romantic fairy tale creature is, but you know, probably actually just talk about some of the archetypes real quick. What, what, Isaac, why don't you go ahead and pull some of those out? And uh, you, Wait, you're putting me on this? <laughs> you're yeah. putting me on I don't know. Jester? <laughs> yeah, Jester. <laughs> uh, mage, Warlock. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what? what um, uh, Mountaineer. Yeah. Avocado, Falcon. Uh, yeah, here, yeah, here's, yeah. Thunderhawk. Here, Thunderhawk. Here, I don't, I, I like that. Uh, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pause this recording professionally. We're going to come back.
Okay, and, and we're back with a list of brand archetypes because we are professionals who prepared thoroughly for this conversation ahead of time. Cody, please read off the official 12 brand archetypes. We have the innocent, the everyman or woman, geez, the hero, the rebel, the explorer, mm. the creator, the ruler, the magician, the lover, the caregiver, and yeah, the jester. Hell yeah. And the sage. What did I what did I say earlier? Did I say mage? Yeah, that's more of like a wizard or like a Oh. Like a like a sorcerer, so not a sage. What is what is uh, basil? There's too I don't there's too many too much to learn here. That's why we ignore this stuff. Okay. Thank you for reading those professionally, Cody. So look these up. It is a very interesting concept. And in case we didn't make this clear up front, the role that these play in the creative process is that they give you a point of view and a brand voice around which you can build your brand. So again, we're talking about these things as process tools and strategy tools. So if your beverage brand is positioned as a, <laughs> a mage, a magician, you're going to have some level of magistry and wonder uh, and discovery and your brand proposition and your storytelling. That's how you use this in the branding process. So the book itself is worth a read. I, I Again, I probably should have found that. It's called The Hero and the Outlaw, I think, which we'll link to show notes, whether or not that's the right name. But it, it pulls heavily, just kind of backing up from that, it pulls really heavily on Joseph Campbell's work or, or even Carl Jung's work. If I said that right, you know, you their did. work on ar archetypes, uh, oh, smarty pants here. So, <laughs> so interesting, no matter what you're into. And if, if we're giving book recommendations, anyone listening to this show, you're probably already familiar with Donald Miller and the story brand framework, but, but that there's a lot of heavy overlap with that, uh, his kind of framework as well, or their framework. So it's a really good, um, lay person way. If you're, so if you're not a trained brand builder or marketer, I think it's a great system for helping folks out there figure out how to position their business and begin to tell their story. Cody, I think we already said this, but I think this is a really valuable concept. We just, and we just don't use it. You know, Kodo doesn't anyway, in our, our work almost never. So what, maybe we should touch on that and not just leave that there. What do we do instead? You know, we spend a good deal of time framing and defining brand voice and personality, which there's a ton of overlap with this and yeah. all of the things that we're talking about here, definitely related, but you know, we, we just find that to be an easy thing to put into action. It's easy for folks to sit around a table in a meeting and understand and kind of get on the same page. And, and now that I'm saying it out loud, <laughs> I am realizing how much this like literally just is the archetype concept. You're just putting this in the context of known characters and types of stories and dynamics. You know, what what are our aspirations and struggles? How do they take form and shape? So this stuff happens when you're when you're building a brand story, whether you realize it or not. Yeah. And now, now that you're saying that, I, I almost do wonder if there isn't some utility to use it just as a way to get our client, like a smoother way even to get our clients on board to understand like a brand voice and position and point of view even earlier. But uh, I'll go back to a, an earlier point and just say that we don't want process tools to become the the end or the main thing you focus on. We're always cautious of that. These tools are in service of getting us to a place where we can begin to build the brand. So so we've historically framed brand voice and personality just in their own buckets, you know, just to, to pull from like, you know, pull those into a brand guideline document, for example, but maybe we should reread that book. I, now that we're talking about this, I'm going to, I think that's at the office. I'll go find it and maybe we it, can. It might be actually on my desk right now. 
Oh, well, I'm not going to wade into that show. No, but, well, <laughs> it might be, it might be, this might be an easier way to kind of carry forward the brand when we're done with that foundational work. So anyway, this, good question here. Yeah. If nothing else, read the book and check it out. And, and maybe we could do an episode on archetypes specifically in the future. It might be, because if nothing else, like I almost, this is something that's a little tougher to put into practice on a, an active project unless, you know, like. Um, I think we've t- featured the work we've done for Lost Nomad in, mm-hmm. in our newsletter, and and we've we've spoken about them on the podcast before. He he was kind of aware of this material, and he was able to identify the explorer as something that, if nothing else, like giving someone this book and saying, after reading these, what what two or three or one of these jump out to you and feel like the thing that you're doing? There's something really valuable there for anyone who's working on marketing. Just kind of explore it in, in almost more of an academic, like just sit there and imagine what this could be kind of way. All right. I'm going to hit you with a wild card here. Uh, hmm. Which are you? Which no, archetype me, are you? Uh, yeah. Me or co- me as Kodo or just No, me? no. Cody, Richard Cody Fag. Oh, <laughs> boy. I'll dox you with your full name. Are you, um, um, what are you? The ruler. I like the sound of that, but it's probably not accurate. Absolutely <laughs> not. Are you out of your mind? <laughs> uh I feel like I'm going to go with the caregiver because I end up doing, yeah, I end up doing a lot of, a lot of nurturing around here. Yeah, you do. You're a very loving son and, uh, yeah, good partner to me. So I'm, I'm not going to give you mine. So, all right, Ladovic, <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure we answered your question to any or with any degree of precision, but, uh, final question here. Let's, let's wrap this up. This is another one from the Beer Branding Trends newsletter uh, from a subscriber. So if you folks are not on that list, uh, quit being a scrub and sign up. And we are going to beerbrandingtrends.com to do that. You can join 6,000 other beer and beverage industry friends there. Okay. Yeah. If you're not on the newsletter list, if you're not on the newsletter list, what are we, what are we doing here? What are, what are we even wasting our time doing? Okay. Fine. (laughs) That we should just berate people. That's how you get them to join. You bully Uh, people. Yeah, bully him. Final question is from Sarah H. I don't know why the H is important. I'll just say Sarah. And here it is. I read the report you linked to in the Lost Nomad issue of the Beer Branding Trends newsletter. Amazing work on that BTW. Cody, I so pause. Cody, I looked that up. That stands for, by the way, oh. BTW. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. am Kodo's, uh, I'm Kodo's Gen Z correspondent. So Yeah, I, I feel <laughs> like you, you would get caught up in one of those like clickbait stories where it's like, BTW means bring the weed. I do. Yeah. I, I send my wife these, uh, these, uh, <laughs> it's like New York post articles. <laughs> Just now understanding texting acronyms. Yeah. I am a 70 year old man in a, I don't know, 40, 30. I don't know how old I am somewhere in there. Okay. Back to Sarah's question. Let me just kind of back up and reread the first part of that. And then I'll read the second part of her question. So I read the report you linked to in the lost nomad issue of the beer branding trends newsletter. The most interesting thing about that report was how much more women are drinking than men. What do you think this means for the future of the craft beer industry? This has traditionally been a male-dominated space, something I've been keenly aware of over the last five years as I've carved out a career in it. Do you think the beer industry, as it is today, can survive as we move into a more diverse, women-led future? That's an important and fantastic question. Cody, we should probably give a brief overview of the, the paper she's talking about. This is a report put out by Rabobank. I think it was Picard Neeson who put it together. Yeah, maybe kind of touch on a few high points from the report just for context. Yeah, if we don't do that, none of this will probably make sense. So 
first of all, we'll include a link to it in the show notes here. So just go check that out on your, your Zoom or phone or whatever you're on. Go read it. I, so I don't want to steal any of their thunder because they put out the report, but a few big takeaways from that report, at least the ones that I think are worth mentioning here are to Sarah's point, there are in the US, women are drinking more alcohol than men for the first time in recorded history. This tracks with more women going to college and building careers. There's a, a corollary there, I believe, between continued education and making more money and kind of like networking experience or opportunities, mm. maybe. So like how alcohol interweaves those things. And it, it, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously not a female, I'm a, a, a male, but if I think about like my younger days, early twenties, there's definitely more of that, uh, you know, let's go grab a drink after mm -hmm. work. What are you doing? Mm -hmm. So that makes sense. More women are going to college. So that tracks. So women are drinking more. The second point kind of related to, to how much more like how much more diverse I'm trying to recall off the top of my head, like how much more diverse those female drinkers are. Uh, so I can't remember any specific numbers, but the rate of female drinking is increasing across just all races, like all, all backgrounds, all creeds, all whatever. So we're headed towards a, a very diverse and more female led future with regards to alcohol consumption. And the flip side of that, which is really interesting is that men are, women aren't just drinking more, men are actively drinking less. So there's an interesting thing going on there. A few more things that were really cool, but maybe not as relevant to Sarah's question here. Cody, we've already talked about this on an episode a while back, but I think uh, the, the figure that two out of every five alcoholic drinks in the U.S. is consumed by a boomer is insane. Uh, I would have guessed, you know, millennials driving that. Yeah. But. Yeah. I think I think back when we first saw that report, it was like, well, huh. I w yeah, I really would have thought that folks in that like 30 to 45 would have yeah. accounted for those two out of every five drinks rather than than you know, baby boomers, which, and we've talked about how, you know, that means that you end up overlooking that category a little bit. Absolutely. And, and then just to the idea of us being kind of surprised by that, then you start looking into cohorts and, and numbers and there's like 75 million boomers. So there's just, it, it makes sense, you know, like more likely obviously to be retired, probably have more wealth than maybe idle time in their retirement. So anyway, the, the big takeaway there, with, at least, at least for us is just kind of how ageist that, I would say alcohol industry, but really the world is just ageist. Uh, it's yeah, it, it's it's interesting that that baby boomers spend this money, but no one really seems to focus or or cater that way. You know, that's different in wine and spirits, I think. But it, it's an interesting oversight, I think. Yeah, we we I think we should definitely save this for another day, another conversation. Advertising in general fetishizes youth, mm -hmm. uh, despite category, despite industry, despite anything. It's just. I don't know if that's just because youth is sexy and or youth is like hook them now and keep them long term. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. Anyway, so th that's a that's a quick overview to, to add some more context to Sarah's question. And her question was, do you think the beer industry as it is today can survive as we move into a more diverse future? So, Cody, what do you think? Before we kind of answer that head on, you know, I, I think everything is going to change over the next decade. Yeah, the the industry that as it has existed on this insane arc from 2010 to 2018, I, I don't see that continuing the exact way that it did. What is that? What do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean from our perspective, opening taproom driven concepts with no meaningful focus on product differentiation or mm. positioning, or no intention put behind you know audience definition and identifying consumers and what they want and catering specifically to that when we that's make not a, happening we, we, we make know. a little bit of beer for everyone the, yeah those, somebody those groups, you know come yeah. on in anyone can find something they like and it's like people have been coasting on that for so long and there's so much of that now 
you know, and, and maybe like these models, you know, they just make beer and they're not doing any beyond beer products. You know, they're one of 20 breweries within a five mile radius that all offer, you know, either the same styles and the same quality and the same type of experience. Or, you know, in some cases, probably there's some that stick out a little bit higher. I think that's fair for any new brewery opening. I think that's good advice anyway. But you, you, so you're saying you don't think that'll like just as more female drinkers are coming on board, coming into industry. You don't think that that'll, that will persist either? No, no contrary. I mean, my personal opinion, I think the contrary, I think, you know, the female drinkers are going to save the industry of anything. And again, I don't think it's going to look like the last 10 years. I think it's going to be more Mm -hmm. measured than that. I surely don't think it's going to crumble. But I, I do think breweries that come to market are going to need to do a better job of thinking about who they're catering, you know, who they're who they're yeah. built for and why they're making what they're making and who's buying it and why they're buying it and what sort of experiences and beverages and what kind of life those people want. It seems like the last, you know, dozen or so breweries and planning that we've worked with are all thinking this way, including coming out of the gate with Beyond Beer products, um, RTDs and non-alcoholic stuff that's not specifically geared toward a female audience necessarily but i do think folks have been forced to think you know like uh we're not just going to make the the clone a brew pub that everybody kind of does so i think we previously talked about this as well the current groups that are coming to market or at least that we're working with seem to be more business and industry savvy than ever before <laughs> uh and and, and i think Seriously, no, I'm, I'm just like, like I'm thinking of all of our like uh, the older clients that we like our our clients from like ten years ago. They listen like, what the fuck, man? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. What I, I'm not savvy. What What are you saying? It, it's just it's an it's it's a condition of the market and what you know what this has to be for a tour. Yeah, and and that that is not an indictment. I think that you have to be more squared away today. I, I think it's just back to our initial uh, opening conversation where. Everyone took it for granted. You, I think you said build it and they will come. And that's what the 2010s was. What what was, is, was. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it was just kind of easy to start a brewery and find growth. So I'm not sure on this question. I, I from, from my perspective, I don't really have an answer that's any better than yours. I think you gave some pretty good thoughts. I think there's plenty of room for more tap rooms across the country. I suspect we'll see more growth there. Less on like kind of the, we're going to package beer for distribution, maybe packages carry out. I think that the next several years we'll uh, see, <laughs> I think bars are going to continue declining. That's something that we haven't really talked about too often. Yeah, that, that would be an interesting topic to touch on at some point. People get touchy about that when you bring it up. Sure. It's change. Yeah. I, I don't know. And that's probably confusing this whole issue. But anyway, Sarah, the <laughs> the world is changing. Uh, we're, we live in a changing world. A new dawn is rising. Yeah. The new normal. So a lot of the changes mentioned in that Rabobank paper are happening quickly. So inside of 10 years, in, in a lot of cases, I think that the beer industry at, at a micro level, so on a tap room by tap room basis, I think you're going to have to evolve or die. That sounds dramatic, but I, I mean, I think it, that will be the case. So anything else there, Cody? No, I, I think that's a pretty fair assessment and not to mention a fun and upbeat note <laughs> Upon which to end our podcast episode. So thank you. We are pint half full uh, designed from here. So, okay, for sure. So that wraps up this episode. Thank you all, all the Beer Brandy Trends newsletter subscribers for sending in these questions today. Thank you to all of you who listen to the show, subscribe, who leave us five-star reviews on iTunes and all that stuff. We appreciate it. We love you and we'll catch up with you soon. Bye-bye. 
Oh, no. Thanks for listening to Beer Branding Trends. If you like what we're doing here, if you find this valuable, please rate and review us over on iTunes. And head over to BeerBrandingTrends.com to join more than 5,000 subscribers who receive our monthly email newsletter covering strategy, currents, and actionable advice from Kodo Design, a branding firm on the front lines of beer and beverage branding. Take care. We'll catch back up with you soon. Thank you.